Good morning, everybody. You all made it today. I'm so proud. Um, let's start with some prayer. God, thank you for this day. Truthfully, thank you for each one of these people that made it a priority to come here today. Um, I honestly am amazed and um, so very thankful. God, I pray that you use um, a super broken vessel this morning to deliver your message. I pray that it is uh, honoring to you and hopefully life-changing for us. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. So, um, we're going to be having two kind of standalone services this week and then one next week. And then we're going to jump into a series where we're going to look at who we are. Really looking at what this body is, what we believe God's called us to. So I really encourage you guys to stick with us and definitely be here for that. Um, we've been looking forward to it as elders, um, and we're just really excited. It's always good to kind of refocus and recenter, and uh, that's what we're going to do in two weeks. So last week was January 5th, and that is uh, our anniversary. And so we, we woke up last Sunday, and I looked at my beautiful bride in the eyes and I said happy 11th anniversary and she says happy 11th anniversary to you too and I was like that's pretty cool 11 years and then we find out like five days later it's actually our 12th anniversary <laughs> so um, marriage is really important to us supposedly holy cow so I've been married for 12 years which I think is pretty amazing now I know for some of you here that's nothing and um Props to you, and I really mean that. I really do love marriage. I love the institution of marriage. Um, being married has been one of the best things for me. The Lord has used my wife um, in many, many ways to grow me, to shape me. And it's, it's insane. I'm 31 years old, and so I've been married for almost half of my life, if I'm doing the math correctly, which is just weird. And so... We're going to start off with a little story time with Uncle Mowgli. It's been a while since we've had one of those. So, how did I meet Becky, my wife? We worked at a camp called Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters in Western North Carolina. Um, as far as places go, anything good that I am as far as ministry comes either from that place or Southern Evangelical where I got my bachelor's degree from. Uh, God used those people and those places in so many ways. So I'm working there. I've worked there for several years, several summers, and um, I was up there for a little retreat deal, and I met this girl. I thought she was kind of cute, and all that kind of stuff, and her name was Becky, and she was from South Carolina, which I never paid any attention to for any reason whatsoever. I was from Florida, um, and met her. It was a good time. That was, that was kind of the intro. All right. But I was able to see her because she was like a leader in her small group or in her youth group, and I was a leader in my youth group, and that's why they kind of had this little, little summit deal to discuss trends that we saw as youth in our youth groups. So automatically, I was like, wow, this girl likes Jesus. She's serious about it. That's pretty cool. All right. We start emailing and stuff because that, that was the thing back then. Facebook um, had come into existence, but you had to be in college. I was not in college, and she had just started. She's older than me. I'm proud of that. All right. So we start communicating just real lighthearted stuff. All right. Then we start working 
at camp that following summer. They had a rule there uh, that they strongly encouraged you not to start a relationship with another staff member during summer. You know, young people who love Jesus, date young people who love Jesus, all about it. But for this 10 weeks, I promise you can handle it for 10 weeks. Wait until it's over. Focus on ministry here. And then you can do this thing. All right? So we followed that rule. I got to meet her some. But I'm an extremist, okay? I either do it or I don't do it. So basically, I ignored her that entire time, right? I borrowed her car once to go hang out with another buddy of mine because <laughs> I didn't have a car and I didn't invite her to come, you know? Because there's no way. We're not supposed to date. You're not going to accuse me of it. I'm out, all right? So for 10 weeks, I basically ignore her just from random volleyball games and just kind of group hangouts. We hang out, all right? Summer ends. We start talking a lot, all the time, really weird. I don't normally talk to girls like this. It's, it's odd, um, but I loved it, right? It made me feel awesome on the inside. And I started, as soon as summer was over, uh, Snowbird has a program called Old School, which is Outdoor Leadership and Discipleship School. It's a whole semester. Uh, now it's worth college credit. Back then you just paid money for it, and so I didn't get any credit for that. Um, but it was, it was a whole semester of living in the woods, multi-pitch rock climbing, um, learning how to whitewater raft guide two different rivers. Um, we did a mission trip for a week and a half uh, in South America. We did a lot of awesome stuff. They do wilderness first responder now. They didn't do that back then. It's only gotten cooler, but it was super cool when I did it. So we'd be in the woods for a couple weeks, and then we'd come back to camp for a couple of days. We'd go into the woods for a couple weeks, and then we'd come back for a couple days. First thing I did, every time I came back, I called that girl up. And we talked. And it was, again, it was strange. I was in a Christian community. I'm sharing this with my guys there. You know, I'm like, hey, is this good? Is this okay? Is this weird? You know, um, come to find out she's doing the same thing with the women in her life. So one day, it was actually during bouldering, which is a type of rock climbing, where you don't go high. You just try to kind of go wide, I guess you could say. Um, you don't have equipment, so you don't want to go high or die, which is a downer. So I'm doing that. I'm horrible at it. To be a good rock climber, you have to be small. Okay? I'm not small. Very difficult. You're holding on with your fingers. I weigh too much. Anyway, I get up one morning and I go, and this is, this is like a movie scene. I sit down in this big field. We're in the woods. And there's a field full of grass. And I'm sitting there I'm reading my Bible because I'm super spiritual and I'm praying and I, I come to the conclusion I promise you I, said, I think I'm in love All right, this is weird I think I'm in love with this girl and it changes my demeanor I'm like holy cow this is legit so I go back and I basically confess this to my guys and hey what do you think about that and they're like that sounds pretty normal but I'm like whoa this is life changing okay so I decide I gotta tell her so as soon as the semester's over, we ended with the missions trip in Honduras. As soon as I get to the Miami airport, I shoot Becky a text. I say, hey, what's up, girl? You know? And she's like, uh, nothing. And I said, can I, are you doing anything tomorrow night? Or no, it was tonight. I don't know. Time is weird. I flew in. It was late or early or something. And she said, no, not really. And I said, can I come see you? And this was a big deal because we didn't see each other very often. 
think we saw each other two times that semester. We mostly just communicated through the phone. She's like, yeah. Her actual response was, I'm down with that, which is weird for her. I was like, what does that mean? Okay, so anyway, she says she's down with it. I get home. I go to bed. It's super early in the morning. I get up, and I'm driving to a state that I've never been to called South Carolina to a city I've never heard of called Rock Hill, and I'm, I'm following it. We get there. The reason why I came was to tell this girl that I was in love with her. But we're not dating at this point. Like I said, I'm an extremist. So I either go all in or not at all. So long story short, I could talk about it all day because I think it was really fun and exciting. We go to a Sonic. We sit down. I'm nervous as I'll get out. I got my fingers in the little expanded metal table. And I'm like, all right, it's time to do it, big boy. So I say, Becky, I'm in love with you. And I've been praying about it, which was true for months. And I would like to be in a relationship with you. And I want to let you know that you can take your time, obviously. But if you agree to do this thing with me, we're going to get married. All right? I'm proposing, basically, okay? So take your time. But I'm an extremist. I'm going all in or I'm all out. She looks at me and she says, well, I can't say that I'm in love with you. Ugh, stabbed with heart. But she says, I'm going to think about it. I was like, yes. Long story short, a week later, we get back together. She had gone and sought some counsel with some of the girls in her life. She said, let's do this thing. That was basically her quote. And that was apparently like 13 years ago. So then from there, we... Uh, dated for six months i gave her a ring six months later during christmas break because we were really young we got married so i got married when i was 19 years old and that is a wild thing uh but it's worked out so far and as long as i clean the toilet seat i think we'll be together for the foreseeable future okay so the reason i think well let me tell you this all right, hold that story. Hit the pause button. I was listening to a guy named John Lennox. He's an apologist, um, and he's a mathematician from Oxford. And he said that sometimes when he gives stories, talking about Jesus um, to, to people, mostly in an evangelistic sense when he shares this story, he, he shares an analogy. He says, imagine I find a young girl, like, for example, Becky, and I want her to marry me. And I hand her a cookbook, and I say, hey, and here's a bunch of recipes that I love. If you will memorize those, if you will work those, if you will master these things, in 40 years, uh, I, might, I might accept you. What do you think would happen, right? Well, my wife would throw it at me, and she would not be married to me, right? Not going to happen. But see, the reason why I think a good marriage lasts and is fulfilling and successful is because it starts with acceptance and commitment right out of the gate, unconditionally. Maybe my extreme proposal dating thing isn't what God wants you to do. Okay, but What I can say is that's what God wanted me to do. right? And that's been the foundation of our marriage since that sonic table. Right? I was 19. If you don't know that, it means you're a teenager, and a teenager by definition is an idiot. 
okay? And the only people in here who may disagree with that are teenagers. Because everyone else who's been through it is like, yeah, yeah, I was an idiot. So God called me to pursue her. He called her to pursue me. And I was an idiot. I can't repeat that enough. Imagine me now, and you're like, I ain't kind of dumb already. Okay, rewind it 12 years, 13 years, I was an idiot. All right, impressive, impressively dumb. But God called her to it. She committed unconditionally to me. I committed unconditionally to her. And here we are today. We've got 10,000 kids. We're happy. Um, and she hasn't thrown me to the curb yet. That's the, that's the recipe for a successful relationship. But I think many of us struggle with treating our relationship with God like that cookbook analogy, right? We think that we've got to do a bunch of stuff. And the things that we feel like we have to do is different for everybody. Maybe it's super moralistic. Maybe it's super disciplined. Maybe it's a spiritual disciplines. Whatever the case may be. We feel like, all right, we're in this kind of relationship with God, sort of, kind of, but we've got to do a bunch of things, got to work really hard or whatever so that someday maybe He'll accept us. God started working on me with this when we were going through the fruit of the Spirit, and I can't shake it. That's why we're going to talk about this today. Just like I could not, I couldn't get over it. My goal today is to make a case for freedom and joy. We always have a reason to be joyful because we are free if we're believers. So today's a perfect example. When I was first asked to kind of help do stuff at Heritage, one of the first conversations I had with Jeremy was, I am not a fan of faking it. I'm going to do whatever I can to be as honest as possible about myself. Because I don't want, my exact quote was, if, well, I'll make it nicer. If some, I want to make it abundantly clear that to, to the people in, in the church, if they put me on a pedestal, it is their fault. Because I'm a moron, I am sinful, I am wicked, and I don't want to do anything to contribute to our natural uh, inclination to put people up on pedestals. So the whole point of the sermon is freedom. Because God has made us free, we should always have joy. Okay? Pretty simple. We had a horrible storm last night. The power was out in this building until an hour before you people showed up. We had basically decided to cancel service because no one's going to be here. People are going to be trapped in their homes. There's going to be no power. Blah, 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 blah. The only reason we're in here is because of Stephen. Stephen's like, I don't want to do that. Let's hold off. Let's wait. And I was ticked. Because I said, I've done all this work. I'm trying to make a sermon. I'm going to show up there. No one's going to be there. There's not going to be power. If there is power, nobody's going to come. Wine, 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 wine. The opposite of joy. Okay? The absolute opposite. As I'm sitting here having to listen to all this music, and I'm thinking conviction so be aware i don't have this memory I, I don't have this mastered i mean i i don't know what i'm doing apparently you can't hear me oops okay i'm i'm an idiot i'm sinful i'm wicked i lack joy that's why god's convicted me about this all right so even this morning after i've prepared all of this it's still all about me 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 i want people to hear what i did blah blah blah, blah. that's horrible okay that is the opposite of joy. The absolute opposite. Okay, but that doesn't change the fact that we're called to it. Most of us are familiar with Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Right? 
rejoice. It's a command. He said to do it. Second thing, he says how often? Always. And in case you didn't get it those two times, again, I'll say it. Rejoice. We don't have a reason not to. If you remember from the Fruit of the Spirit um, series, we said that the Fruit of the Spirit is love, and then all those other things are descriptions of love. And, and as I've toyed around with that more and more, specifically with joy, I think joy is the visual expression of love that people can see in us. And when you talk about love and joy, um, we like to nuance it and say joy is not the same as happiness. And that is true. But oftentimes we use that distinction as an excuse to not be joyful. Right? Because they look really similar for a reason. And if we are living in, and we have understanding of our freedom that Christ has given us, we'll be joyful. And it's going to look a lot like happiness. And that's something that we can express in the way that we're just living. And that makes an impact on people. Alright? There is a distinction between happiness and joy. And that would be happiness is more contingent on circumstances being good. So even though we go through things that are bad, um, sad, uncomfortable, negative, whatever, we can still have joy. And that joy is still going to look largely, not always, but largely like happiness. I don't like to discipline my children. That is not fun. But if I'm living the way I ought to be, and I'm focused on my freedom in Christ and the work that He's doing in me, I can still have joy when I'm doing something like that that I don't like. Right? When your kids are living in rebellion, you don't like it, but you can still have joy. When you're in an in a argument with your spouse, not fun, but you can still have joy. Alright? So we're commanded to have joy, and joy is the visual expression of love. And it's my conviction that it is unloving for Christians to be joyless. Alright? We are speaking some sort of gospel always. And when we are believers and we are joyless, we are showing, we are giving a testimony that following Christ is not joyful. Whatever that opposite may be. Alright? And that was sobering for me. So why should we be joyful? It's because we're free. Galatians 5, 1 through 15. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Alright. We're free at the beginning. The beginning of the relationship with God at salvation. We are absolutely free. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're going to be free from the presence of sin when we die. We are free. And He set us free so that we can live freely. Okay? We aren't working so that someday we can receive that. Just like the recipe analogy from John Lennox. It's not what we're doing. Just like an inheritance, which we'll talk about a little more later, you receive an inheritance because it's given to you because of a status that was given to you. Okay? You didn't do it. Um, He ends that verse by saying, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. One of the things that we see through the rest of the text that we're going to be looking at, you could call this sermon a touch of slavery, right? Be a little, little more provocative that way. Because that's what we're doing 
whenever we're not living in our freedom and we're not living with joy. We're finding some sort of thing to put a heavy yoke of slavery back on ourselves. Because at salvation, if you're a believer, you're no longer under that. You're no longer under that yoke, that burden of slavery and of doing it on your own. But every time you dabble just a smidge, you're dabbling with just, just, just a little hint of slavery. Okay? That sounds weird for a reason. Because you can't. It's a bad idea. You're either enslaved or you're not. Alright? But we keep justifying, or at least I do, just, just a little hint of slavery. Just a little hint of, of self-effort um, and making myself okay. The next verse says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. So the book is the Galatians, right? It's written to the Galatian people. The Galatians were um, Gentiles. They were not Jews, okay? But there were some people among them who were. And some of those Jews were trying to bring circumcision back. They were trying to bring at least elements of the old covenant into the new covenant, into this new church. And circumcision was, was the argument they were having of, of this in this day. They called those folks Judaizers because they were, I guess, Judaizing Christianity. Okay? Well, like we just said, he repeats this theme of just a little bit of slavery. In verse 3, he says that Christ, if you, if you kept part of it, circumcision, part of the old law, then you're obligated to keep the whole thing. And you've severed yourself from Christ and you have cut yourself off from His grace. Alright? One of the things that we also need to remember out of verse 6 is as Protestants, we believe in a cute Latin word, sola fide, two words, I guess. All right? What do we mean by that? As Protestants, as people who are not Roman Catholic, right, there's a couple of things, five big things, all right, that we believe that's different. And one of those is sola fide, faith alone. All right? Verse 6 tells us here, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. So he's saying, um, they're obviously debating the act of circumcision, and in this particular part, he's saying the difference between the Jews who were circumcised, they'd separated themselves from the rest of the world, and the Gentiles. He's saying in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Under Christ, it's about faith in Him. That's it. No work. No work. Alright? Verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There again, we see that, that uh, concept of just, just a touch of slavery. He says it's not possible. You put a little leaven in, it changes the whole thing. 
I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the other, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. All right, not to be gross, there's a whole lot of circumcision parallels and talk throughout this whole section. Okay, um, If you don't know what circumcision is, call up your mom or dad and ask them. And they'll uh, inform you. But what we see through this whole section is he says, all right, circumcision doesn't help. All right, doesn't matter. All right, and then he moves on to this section that we just read, and he says, okay, so you do a little leaven, it, it, it ruins the whole thing or it affects the whole thing. He says, if I preached the law, if I preached circumcision, then why would I be being persecuted? Because there's a, there's a diametrically opposed position. There is either works and law, the old covenant alone, or there's the new covenant that fulfills the old covenant. Grace and through faith alone in Jesus. You can't have a little. He then goes on to say, I wish if they were going to go as far as to circumcise themselves, that they'd go all the way and cut the whole kitten caboodle off. Why? Okay, the reason is, according to Old Testament law, which Paul was an expert in, that would have made them ceremonially unclean. and They'd have been separated from God all the way. You want to do it on your own? Do it on your own. Just be done with it. I know it's gross, but it's the Bible. Blame Jesus, not me. Alright? So he says, if you want to do it on your own, do it on your own. You can't have just a hint of slavery. You can't have just a hint of works. A hint of self-righteousness and self-effort. You either rely on Jesus to do it, or do it on your own. He's making a pretty clear statement. Alright, this is basically, not basically, he's saying this is another gospel that these Judaizers are teaching. In verse 7 and 8, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. Truth is huge. That concept of truth is under attack constantly in our current society. If it's true, it's God's. It's God's truth, right? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So this works based stuff that most of us struggle with one way or another is not the gospel. If you've been in church long enough, you can gospelize it enough, right? We can gospelize, gospelize our, our self-efforts and our works and why we got to do this and not do that or whatever it is. We could put some, some Christian lingo around it, but it's not the gospel. If it's relying on you, it's a different gospel. It's not from the one it's not true, and it's not from the one who calls them. I got some notes on circumcision. You guys get that, I think. Again, ask your mom or your dad or Stephen. He made us be here today, so ask him. He'll tell you. All right. You can't have a little bit of slavery, it's the whole thing. That's why Paul is still being persecuted by largely the Jewish population, right? Because he was showing again. Repeating, you can't have a little bit of slavery. He said if these were the same thing, or if they were compatible, the Jews would not be persecuting me. These are opposite concepts. 
These are opposite things. What, what do we do with this, though, right? Because we're not Jews. So how do we sometimes let law or works-based things slip into our lives? In general, Christians, we, we're good at this too sometimes. You know, we'll, we'll create kind of our own culture, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but then we'll elevate some of those kind of Christian cultural norms to a level where they're a law, right? That's a problem. Legalism is an issue. And by legalism, I mean often it's rules that we make up that are a good idea, but then we start to impose them on others, right? As a human being, sometimes it's just a good idea for you to throw up some guardrails in your life. I am an advocate for that. The issue comes in, or that becomes legalism, when we start throwing those same standards that are more personal onto other people. Right? There are, there are things in Scripture, obviously, if you know me, you know I believe this, that are absolutely 100% the case. But when things aren't that, and we put up a guardrail for our own selves, good. But then when we oppose that on other people, we're crossing into dicey territory. That's what I mean when I say legalism can be a thing. One of them is relying on our own strength to defeat sin. It's useless. I've done it for many years, and I still practice it. And it's just the hint of slavery. right? It's where I constantly live my life. I meet with guys, I confess my sins, and it's all right, what can I do to fix it? What can I do to fix it? I'm like, hey, have you prayed? And I'm like, uh, what can I do to fix it? What can I do to fix it? If you don't believe me, ask John. We've had the same conversation for two years, right? It's, it's a problem. It's an issue. What can I do to fix it? What can I do to fix it? And, and they're constantly having to pull me back. What is your problem? You know, that is, that is at least for me, where it sleeps in. And when that comes in, then I get to keep on self-hatred because I'm not, I'm not meeting the standards that I've created. Or maybe it's a standard of God's and I'm relying on me to do it instead of Him doing it. So I still get to hate on myself. right? And that usually leads to hating on other people and judging other people and condemning other people for not pursuing uh, or ends up us not pursuing righteousness altogether. Because why bother? I've been there a dozen times. I've worked really hard this past year to be awesome, and I'm still terrible. So let's just throw in the towel, right? Let's just jump into some sin headlong, because it ain't working. Well, we just said, you can't have a little hint of slavery. But I just want a little bit. I just want to put that yoke on just part way, right? It's just like a moron. Just keep going back, throwing it on. Keep going back, throwing it on, right? What's my problem? Another way that this this sort of law, this working um, mentality can seep in, is being paralyzed by fear to follow God. right? And this can be because, or one way of looking at that, or one way that that can work itself out, is we have a fear of other people seeing our hypocrisy. So we end up being like secret Christians, or we're Christians that just aren't obedient. God calls us to do something bigger, better, greater. We don't do it. Or we're just a secret Christian, wherever we work or go to school or, or in our neighborhoods or whatever. And we keep it quiet because, good Lord, if they knew that I was a Christian and how horrible I am too, then you got to deal with all this hypocrisy this, hypocrisy that. I'm growing largely to have some strong beliefs about that, but we'll save that for another day. 
That's not what God calls us to. None of those things represent freedom. And when I look at myself and I look at my emotions, right, and I look at the way I view my, my inner self, the way I view my spiritual walk with the Lord, joy is not one of the first descriptors that come up. And that's because I'm not living in freedom. I'm not remembering that He already set me free. He's done the whole work. Alright? So what do we do with that? We'll talk about that in a second. Right before this verse, or this section of Scripture, in Galatians 4, Paul retells a story in kind of a weird way about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. If you remember, God promises Isaac, or Isaac, Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a baby. And then through this baby, a bunch of other folks will be born. It's going to be a huge, awesome promise thing, right? They wait around. She's barren. No kids. So they come up with this great, crafty idea. God wants us to have a kid. So according to our law, if you impregnate someone else, it doesn't matter. It's still kind of like our kid. So they have a servant named Hagar. And Sarah and Abraham were both in on this. He has sex with her. They have a son named Ishmael. Okay? They're trying to fulfill this thing on their own human, through human efforts and human thinking and, and whatnot. That's obviously not what God wanted. God then, through miraculous means, because both Sarah and Abraham were too old for uh, creating children, creates a miracle. They have a son. His name is Isaac. And that's where the promise is supposed to come through. He says, Paul says that this whole story is... Uh, an analogy, or can be used as an analogy. It did happen, so don't think that. But it can be used as an analogy for what this church is going through right now. After these kids were born, Ishmael and Isaac, they throw a big party when uh, it says that when, when Isaac was weaned. Ishmael, obviously being older, kind of knows what's going on. He thinks it's funny. He's kind of making fun of Isaac and laughing. Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael to be thrown out because she doesn't want him to receive the inheritance and the blessing that God has promised to Isaac. God says, listen to what she says to Abraham. I'll take care of them. So he does it. All right? That's kind of the story. Well, so how does that relate to what's going on here as far as works-based uh, Christian living or works-based salvation versus faith and grace and Jesus? All right? Ishmael was a slave. And he was born a slave because he was born to a slave woman. Right? And he was born through human planning and scheming. And that was his journey that he was set on. Isaac was brought to place because of promises of God, because of blessings, and through uh, miraculous means. All right, that, that is analogous for us as believers and our salvation. We're born once of water and flesh, and then we're born again of spirit. If you're going to operate through human means, there's one result. There's one end. And you can follow any other religion in the world. Because it all ends in slavery. And there's one other option. Through miraculous means, through the spirit, not through us. And it leads to freedom and salvation. That's the first contrast that he makes. 
Isaac was born to a free woman, so he was free through that, through supernatural birth and promise. Ishmael, uh, his persecution of Isaac is analogous to the false teachers here who are persecuting, they're putting a heavy yoke back on to people that they themselves can't carry. Legalistic self-effort. And finally, we see the idea of observing the law, being like Ishmael, does not equal inheritance in the family of God. It's reiterating that first point. Ishmael does not receive Abraham's inheritance. Isaac does. He was brought forth in slavery through human scheming, through human means, and he receives that inheritance. Isaac came through supernatural birth, through promise, and he receives inheritance in God's family. Um, The section of Scripture in Galatians ends with this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Fulfilled. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So we're free for freedom's sake. And it becomes easy and tempting, especially for a younger church like ours, to... uh, to rebel against what we perceive as legalism and to throw freedom um, as far as actions in other people's faces, right? Who maybe aren't, aren't in the same place we are spiritually, have different sets of convictions that are godly from God, right? And we throw those things in their faces. Uh, Paul tells us not to do it, right? Like everything in life, unfortunately, uh, there's, there's a ditch on this end and a ditch on this one. You've got legalism here, and over here you have license to sin. Right? God says do not do either of them. And we all probably have a propensity for one of those or the other. And we've got to try to stay there in the middle. We are free for freedom's sake and to serve others. If we're using our freedom so that we can serve those around us, you don't have to worry too much about those two ditches. Right? You're set free so that you can free the captives. You've been set free so that you can minister to those who are still under a yoke of slavery. That's why we're free. We're not free so that we can have license to sin, uh, so that we can offend everybody that we come in contact with, right? We are free so that we can loose the chains and the bonds off of those who are still captive. Um. I made a chart. There's my segue. And hopefully this is helpful. On one side, we have law and works. On the other side, we have Jesus and faith and freedom. Okay? Under law and works, there is no inheritance. We have uh, demands. The law gives us demands, but is unable to enable us to fill them or to obey them. The law and works enslaves us and it leaves us joyless and burdensome. Jesus, faith, freedom gives us inheritance into God's kingdom and family. It empowers and enables us to do the things that He's called us to, even righteousness and holiness. 
frees us and there's freedom and it should cause us to rejoice. So again, as you turn more inward, as you look at who you are on the inside, as you look at your disposition, as you look at your spiritual walk with God, or any of these different things, which one of those describes you? And if it's not joy, if joy isn't one of the first things that comes to your mind, I challenge you to think and examine yourself. Maybe you're operating more in this system than this one. Maybe you've gospelized a bunch of things that fall under the law and the works camp. Maybe you're on the other extreme and you're justifying and giving yourself license to sin. I don't know. Either one of those extremes, though, will lead us to a joyless and burdensome life. Remember, it is our obligation as children of God, if we're believers, to live a life of joy. The visible expression of love to a lost and dying world so that they can see there is something different. And when you fail, just call it what it is and keep moving. Don't be paralyzed by it. And finally, my, my last thought is, okay, what do I do? Because I'm still a doer. What do I need to do in this whole thing? Right? And the fact of the matter is, you need more Jesus more than you need less sin. Right? If, if you're still worried because I'm still sinning in this way, I'm still this, I'm still this, I'm still angry, I'm still lustful, I'm still um, a gossip, I'm still full of anxiety, whatever it is, you don't need to be less anxious. Anxious. You don't need to be less lustful. You don't need to be less whatever. You need more Jesus. Put your focus and your effort into knowing Him. Because He's the one who frees us from those sins. And if you're still consumed like I am with figuring out what I need to do to get rid of those things because those things are bad, those things are sin, right? And I'm still trying to operate with just a hint of slavery. Just a touch. Jesus says, no, stop it. Come to Me. I'll take care of that if you come to Me. And my response is, yeah, but. Yeah, but. I'm 31 years old and I'm still yeah, butting it. You can't have a hint of slavery. You either... Go all in and do it on your own. And that leads to slavery and death where you let Jesus do it. We need more Jesus more than we need to sin less. That's where you can put your effort. That's where you can put your time and your energy. Be free and live joyfully because you've been saved by an all-loving God to spend eternity with Him if you don't know Jesus, find one of us and we will pray with you. God, thank you for being the freer of captives. Thank you for being consistent. Thank you for not quitting on us when we continue to run back to the yoke and bondage of self-effort and slavery. 